Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Matthew. Thank you for being with us today at church. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Eastside. I'm going to read today from the book of 1 Peter, which is a little book at the end of your Bible. Probably haven't been there in a minute. Um, I'm going to read from verses 18 to 22, and then we'll pray and see what God has for us today. Um, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark in which a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, Jesus, we thank you for, as Peter describes, the ark of the church. And we thank you, Lord, that there is plenty of room for all of us in it. God, help us um, in this Lenten season that we are beginning today. um, Help us to just be present to you, trusting that you have a, a thing that you're doing in us in this hard time. And we ask for open and soft hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So on Tuesday morning, I was on our prayer call. Uh, We meet every Tuesday at 7 a.m., Thursdays at 8 a.m., and you should totally join us. They're always really special times. But uh, I was on the Tuesday morning Zoom call, and someone who's a a regular there began to pray pretty early on. He said, "Um, God, tomorrow, this is a paraphrase, but he's like, God, tomorrow we're, we're beginning Lent, which we were. And he said, I'm kind of nervous. I don't really want to do it this year. It's been a hard year. It feels like it's been a year of Lent. um, And going deeper into darkness at this time is not something I'm excited about. And even though like we were all muted on Zoom, there was just like this general like, "Mm mm-hmm, yes, that's right, going on. But then he went on. He said, but I do uh, trust, God, if you're asking me to go into the wilderness with you right now, it's because you have something good for me. So help me to please trust you and to go with you there. Um, it reminded me of something I read the day before in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 4 verse 1 says this. It says, and then um, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, which is quite a sentence. If you think about it, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. No wonder two chapters later in Matthew 6, Jesus literally teaches his church to pray and lead us not into temptation because he'd just been through it. Um, And yet the bigger, truer, deeper uh, promise or or reality or or instruction that we get from Matthew 4 verse 1 is this, that if God is leading us into the wilderness, it is because he has something for us there that is good. He wants to do something in us that he's not going to be able to do if we're not in the wilderness. I think God wants to do two things in us when we walk into the wilderness. The first is I think God wants to show us that he is enough to carry us through hardship and hunger and loneliness and darkness. But the second thing I think God wants to do in us in the wilderness is he wants to show us that we can do more than we thought we could, that there's actually more um, grit to our souls than we may feel like we have access to right now. He wants us to discover something about ourselves. 
it's, uh, it's essentially the wilderness is where we learn what life in the spirit is really made up of. That it's, it's daring and brave and risky, but also ultimately safe and secure and grounded. And when Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness, he came out of that time um, galvanized, like ready to step into a very hard three-year ministry that led all the way to a crucifixion. And I think that that's what happens in the wilderness. It's like this space where you're ultimately safe, but you're also learning that you can do more than you thought you could. It's one of the big things I feel like I'm constantly doing with my kids right now. They're all in very different developmental stages, but to create this sort of environment where they can take risks and they can succeed or they can fail, but in either way, they'll learn something about themselves and they're totally safe in the process. That's how we become braver people, I think. I don't know what you're feeling as we begin Lent together, but I imagine that many of us are feeling tired and like we don't want to do this. Or like we've been in Lent, so why can't we just like keep doing what we've been doing? But the reality is I know that most of us have experienced a lot of hardship this year, but we've also done a lot of self-indulgence this year to try to cope with the hardship. And I believe that God is saying, for the next 40 days, will you trust me and will you go into a place where you abstain from things, where you choose to remove things, where you put things down, things that maybe you've picked up too many times this year. The ancient peoples understood that we needed to learn these lessons. We needed to learn that in the midst of hardship, we were able to endure and to actually rise to the occasion. They called these uh, rites of passage or initiation rites. And ancient peoples all over the world to this day still practice initiation rites. Lent is, in a sense, it's an initiation rite that happens every year where we are pushed out and left to find new ways of surviving. God promises that he's with us to hold us, to carry us through, but also he's going to have us learn how to walk, how to be tougher, how to grow strong. I believe that God's promise to you and me in this moment is that he has a word for us in the wilderness and it is Jesus's word to the devil, which was this, we do not live on bread alone. Um, That we actually are going to find life in something beyond that. In our Lenten services each Sunday this year, so for the next six Sundays, we're going to be in these little letters at the end of our New Testament called epistles. They're words that Paul and others wrote to churches in various contexts, various circumstances. And the thing that binds all of these churches or all these letters together, or the passages at least that we're looking at, is that in every one of them, there's going to be an appeal to the cross of Jesus as being definitive in explaining our own life, our own suffering, and our own death. That's why we've even changed the background of our our services and just made it the cross that used to hang above the stage in there. We just want it to be very clear that like we're thinking about one thing for the next 40 days. And it is what this cross has to say to you and to me. Now, our text for this morning is weird. First Peter 3, if you haven't read this or you haven't read it in a while, you're probably a little overwhelmed by all that's going on in here. There's some very strange allusions in it. It's honestly one of the weirder texts in the New Testament. And so uh, I'm excited to teach it because I love weird stuff. But it is, um, it's, it's, it's a very dense little paragraph. There's a lot of language in it that's probably familiar to you. Actually, a lot of the words from it sound like the creed that we say every Sunday in the parking lot. Words like descended and uh, died, suffered, crucified, resurrection, 
seated at the right hand. These are all things we say on a weekly basis here, and they come uh, from the language that is used in 1 Peter 3. But the focal point of this text is what has Jesus done? In fact, one scholar said, really, this, this section reads like a resume of sorts of what Jesus has accomplished, what he has uh, put forward, specifically what he accomplished between Good Friday and uh, Pentecost Sunday. So that's what we're going to do today. We're just going to look at what Jesus has accomplished so that we can see him better, so that we can love him better, so that we can know our own selves, so that we can face our own sufferings differently. The first thing we see in this text is that Christ's suffering brings us to God. For Christ also suffered, uh, Peter writes, to bring us to God. That is really like the gospel in a sentence, that somehow Christ's suffering accomplished something that now carry us into God's arms. Uh, It tells us why this is possible, but it doesn't explain how. It says the righteous for the unrighteous. So Jesus, the righteous, suffered for the unrighteous. And because of that, there was some transaction that we don't necessarily understand, nor are we necessarily supposed to understand, where now, because of that, people who were unrighteous are brought in as though righteous are given the opportunity to have a sense of belonging. Now, righteous and righteousness are not words that probably you ever use or even hear, unless you're watching Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. They're just words that have disappeared and they exist, exist sort of like only in the church. Um, but what they, what they are is um, really important words for what it means to be a Christian. Righteousness and justice, actually, in both Greek and Hebrew, are nearly the same words. They're basically identical. They are so interrelated, which means if you want to understand what righteousness is, you need to understand what justice is according to the Bible, which is, which is why righteousness, it's not just enough to talk about righteousness as being like good versus bad. It's actually whether or not something is like belongs or it doesn't belong, whether something is like fair or unfair, whether something is just or unjust. That's like the bigger idea behind righteousness. So in fact, there's a lot of relational undertones in it, this idea of covenant. And so what happens is it says Jesus who belonged, Jesus who had standing, Jesus who uh, was fairly in the presence of God died. And now people who didn't belong, people who didn't have fair standing, now they are being carried um, into God's arms. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about this. Um, Lent is an opportunity for us to embrace it, that you and I needed a savior, that at the end of the day, I am Matthew and I am unrighteous. I, I needed a righteous person to make it possible for me to belong. And that, that's what we do for these 40 days is we look at our unrighteousness We look at it in all its clarity and we carry it to God because we know that he's made it possible for us to belong. But there's more than that in this text. There's Christ, it says his sufferings bring me to God, but also I I would say now my sufferings also bring me to God. In fact, there's this great little word in the text and, and it's easy to miss, but it's at the very beginning for Christ also suffered. Well, who's the also? Christ and who? Well, if you go back in chapter three, you see the and who is you? that you and I are suffering. We find ourselves in the midst of suffering. And Peter is very clear. He's like, not suffering for doing what's wrong. So if you like run a Ponzi scheme and go to prison for it, that's not suffering uh, in the way that Jesus suffered. It's like doing the right thing and seeking to live a whole life and seeking to be a loving presence in your neighborhood and still experiencing the underside of a favor or good fortune. For Christ also suffered. The context is that Um, your suffering and Christ's suffering somehow are interconnected with one another. um, They're related to one another. 
Tish Harrison uh, Warren in her book, which I quoted on Ash Wednesday, Prayer, uh, Prayers in the Night, which I couldn't recommend enough. I'm, I'm only about halfway through with it, but I just love, I've loved every sentence. And uh, I, I think it's maybe the best Lent read I could recommend to you right now. Um, but she has a, 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 a word or a quote very early in the pages of this book from a funeral that she attended years ago. And the quote is this, the, the pastor uh, performing the ceremony said, you cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening to you. You cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening to you. Now this hits us like, you know, a bomb in our heart. I mean, this idea that um, I thought I was supposed to be able to trust God to keep bad things from happening to me. And yet we know also at the same time in our bones that it's true that we can't trust God to keep bad things from happening to us. That bad things happen to good people all the time. Bad things happen to prayerful people all the time. Oftentimes this uh, keeps us from fully engaging with it because we don't, we just want to escape the questions that it raises about God, either his powerlessness or his lack of goodness. This is often what's called theodicy. Theodicy is this, uh, it literally means the vindication of God, which of course implies if God needs to be vindicated, it implies that God's on trial, which of course he is. God is on trial in our hearts, particularly when bad things are happening to us or people we deeply care about. We look at God and we say, why are you doing nothing about this? Why are there things that you could stop, but you aren't stopping? Now, no one understands, I think, the agony of this question quite like the Jewish people. Um, Elie Wiesel, who of course most of us know him for his, his book Night, about his experience in the uh, Auschwitz concentration camp when he was a teenager, he wrote a play um, called The Trial of God, which is beautiful. And uh, it's a fictional play, but it is an actual, it's based on a, a, a thing he witnessed while a teenager in Auschwitz, where a series of rabbis essentially put God on the stand and made him defend himself, made him the defendant and they the prosecution. How can you say you are good and that you love us, that we are your covenant people when we are starving to death next to gas chambers? It's a question that has all the edge in the world in it. How can you say you're good? And of course, the answer is that there is no good answer to the question apart from the suffering of the son of God on the cross. This is why Jürgen Moltmann says the death of Jesus on the cross is the center of all Christian theology. It's the center of how we understand all of life. All, it's not just Christian theology, like stuff that lives in a book, like how you and I make sense of the, the world that you and I live in. It's only made sense of by the suffering of Jesus. Um, Warren goes on to say in her book, she goes, Jesus left a place where there was no night so that he could enter our darkness. He met with blisters and indigestion, with fractured relationships and the death of friends, with an oppressive empire, the indignity of poverty, the terror of violence. One night he swept blood, asking the father to spare him from agony, weeping in lonely darkness while his friends fell asleep. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And soon after he was tortured to death. And then she says, God did not keep bad things from happening to God himself. Which means that the only place our suffering really finds a sense of meaning or purpose or understanding, the only place we can actually take it where we will discover why or how is in the suffering of Jesus himself, who in his suffering carries us to God. So our suffering becomes a doorway to God, just as his suffering becomes what carries us to God. The second thing we see in this text 
is that Christ's unconditional love never stops pursuing us. Um, I, uh, this text has a little detail in it that only happens here in the New Testament. It tells us what happened after Jesus died. It's a great little thing. It's shrouded in mystery. It's, it's backfilled with a lot of Jewish apocryphal illusion. And so um, we don't totally understand what it's even referencing. But what Peter says is that after Jesus died, he went to spirits in prison and proclaimed something to them. How did he do this? We don't know. What did he say? It doesn't say. But why would Jesus go to people in prison? Who are these people? These are unrighteous people, people who died, who were not at peace with God, who were not right with God. And Jesus goes and finds these people in the land of the dead, essentially, in Hades, and he proclaims something to them. What is he proclaiming to them? Well, I think he tells us in Luke chapter four what he said to them. When he says, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to do what? To proclaim liberty to the captives and release to those who are bound. In other words, Jesus goes and finds the people who are in chains, self-appointed chains, and he takes the chains off, or at least gives the opportunity for the chains to fall off. They're given liberty, or at least the opportunity for liberty. Do you know what this means about how much God loves you? That he will never stop pursuing you? That he will never, ever give up on you? that he will always come after you. The very first people to see the post-crucified Jesus, the victorious Jesus, the first people were the least deserving. God's unconditional love in Christ will never stop pursuing us. And thirdly, we see that in Christ, in his resurrection, he has remade all things. The story of Noah shows up here just almost like he borrows it and then he, he turns it around and turns it into other things. It's really funny. Um, if you read First and Second Peter, Peter talks about Noah twice. Noah doesn't show up like hardly anywhere else in the New Testament, but he shows up in Peter's writing. I think he loved Noah. He probably had like a stuffed Noah when he was a kid. Noah, the story of Noah and the flood is a terrible story. And what I mean by that is a terrifying story. It's a story about mass judgment and, and execution and near extinction. It's a story about a global flood that, that wipes out most of the human race and the animal population. It is not a story that we should decorate our children's nurseries with. And yet we do because we like rainbows and boats and animals. But it is a story that actually has a tremendous edge to it. And Peter just grabs it really quickly. He says, just as in the days of Noah, when God waited patiently in the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. So he says there was a time in which there was a judgment coming on the earth and God saved a few people. He put them in a boat and he carried them to safely along with animals while the rest of the world faced judgment. And then he says, and this was prefiguring baptism, which now saves you. How? He says at the end of the clause, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a little heady, but this is awesome. Do you know what that means? That means that, in, that what Jesus' resurrection has done is taken the ark, which was a sign of exclusivity. It was an instrument of judgment. And, the ba- and, and now it has become a sign of baptism, which is available to everyone. In other words, what the resurrection does is it takes even judgment and it opens the door of the ark up so that there's enough space for 
all of us now. It's not just eight people. Everyone's welcome aboard. Nobody has to be left behind. Everyone can find a seat. Everyone now can belong. Everyone now can be righteous. No one is left outside. That the resurrection has, in a single moment, not only made sense of suffering and dealt with it in a final way, but the resurrection on the other side is now remaking everything, even judgment, even death, even suffering, even loss, even COVID, even poverty, violence and injustice, that the resurrection is so total and whole that it has managed to answer the question of all the pain and suffering in the world and turn it into something in which you and I now can be carried safely to God. This Lent, our theme is um, nothing can separate us. It comes from the text that I'll, we'll look at next week, actually. One of my favorite texts in the Bible. The idea is that because of Christ's suffering, that now there is nothing that could possibly separate us from the love of God, which is to say there is nothing that could possibly separate us from ultimate hope, ultimate restoration, ultimate renewal. This idea that all things, even suffering, even death, only move us closer to God, this doesn't make us fatalists. This doesn't uh, fetishize death. It doesn't make us masochists or, or suicidal. What it does is it makes us fearless. It helps us to look the, the hardest and the darkest things, even on our earth and in our world, square in the face and know that they're not the last word, that instead the last word is resurrection. The ark becomes baptism. Everyone is invited on. Everyone is invited into the water. The water is no longer judgment. It now cleans us. That Jesus has done an ultimate thing and now nothing, neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor powers nor things present nor things to come or anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That all the things in my life right now that hurt, and there's a lot of things, that we can now look at them through a different lens and call them as Paul called them, light and momentary afflictions things that are now doing something good in us, that are making something new in us. All things remade, all things made new. Sufferings now become a road to embrace. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Death becomes eternal life. Judgment becomes an ark that's large enough for anyone. And the love of God is made manifest in Jesus who never ever stops pursuing us. And so we come to the table now. I hope you can join us because we need to be reminded of that every week. That we needed the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And it happened. It's done. It is, in Jesus' words, it's finished. And so now we can live in the world with that as a backbone that enables us to love and forgive, to move towards others, to forbear, to be people of hope, and so let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that, um, that you have made a way for all of us <laughs> to fit in the ark so that there is nothing separating us from love. Help us, God, to believe it. Let it move uh, from our head into our heart and galvanize us as we walk into the wilderness with you, remembering, Lord, that you make rivers in the desert, roadways in the wilderness, that even the harshest of conditions are spaces in which you will feed us and care for us and carry us. And so we trust you as we enter this Lenten season that you are a good shepherd. I love you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Hope to see you in a moment at the, uh, in the parking lot. Grace and peace to you, friends. You are loved.